0: This is an Australian Museum podcast.
1: Welcome to Amplify, a regular conversation featuring Australian Museum Director and CEO Kim McKay, speaking to researchers, scientists and other fascinating people from behind the scenes at the Australian Museum.
0: Hello and welcome to Amplify. I'm Kim McKay, the Director and CEO at the Australian Museum in Sydney. And today we're talking to one of our fantastic scientists who is an archaeologist. Now, we've spoken to so many people who work in the natural sciences area behind the scenes of the museum. But, boy, archaeology, it sort of really conjures so many images in your mind, I guess because many of us grew up with Indiana Jones. But the person sitting in front of me today, she says she's far from Indiana Jones and that she was around much before he was even thought of. Please welcome Dr. Robin Torrance. Welcome, Robin.
1: Glad to be here, Kim.
0: That's great. Now, Robin is an amazing person. She's one of our foremost scientists at the Australian Museum. She's been recognized internationally for her work and for her expert knowledge, particularly in the Papua New Guinea region, and we'll, we'll get down to that. But, Robin, firstly, what made you want to become an archaeologist?
1: I um, was fascinated by American Indian cultures. My mom was very interested in American Indian culture. She was a modern dancer. Now you do have
0: an American accent there, so tell us where was this, where were you growing up? I
1: grew up in Illinois, 100 miles from Chicago, but the family took trips to New Mexico and Colorado where I got to see living American Indian communities and at a wonderful place called Mesa Verde, which is an ancient site where they have houses built in uh, caves they had a wonderful museum with dioramas. Whoa. And that did it. Just the, the connection between the empty houses and then the reconstructed ones and the whole process of putting people in places and so creative and interesting and exciting. And that's at the age of 13, I decided I'd become an archaeologist.
0: Dioramas, we don't see them that often. We only have one left in the museum, which it depicts Lord Howe Island, the bird life on Lord Mm -hmm. Howe Island. But in American museums, I I remember going to the American Museum of Natural History in New York the first time, and of course, it's famous for its dioramas, isn't it? Because Mm. depicted uh, as well in the night at the museum, those movies.
1: I I think dioramas are wonderful, and it is very much a part of the imagination of an archeologist, because you go from things that are lifeless and incomplete and hardly there, and you get to recreate a world. So everyone who makes a diorama is, in a sense, being an archeologist, recreating a world from stuffed animals or bits of this and that, and it's great fun.
0: So there you are at age 13, inspired by the local communities you saw in New Mexico and other places in the United States. So where did you, when you left school, you went to college, where was that?
1: I went to a place called Bryn Mawr College outside of Philadelphia because they had both archaeology and anthropology. But I discovered fairly soon that I wasn't very interested in classical archaeology because of the emphasis on art. And I was much more interested in ordinary, everyday people. Um, and probably pre-civilization, it was further back, harder to imagine, more intriguing to me.
0: Right. So. Ancient Egypt didn't really attract you or Peru? Or
1: no, they and the other thing is once you learn more about them, the mount you have to learn because they've been studied so much. It's huge. You spend half your time trying to learn what's already known, whereas I really wanted to dive into the unknown right away and create it for myself. A bit selfish, but that's what I really wanted to do.
0: And so after college, you went on and did a PhD, I'm assuming, at that time.
1: Yes, I did a PhD at the University of New Mexico, but I wasn't there very long. I went off to England with my partner and um, worked with a man called Colin Renfrew and ended up, of all places, in Greece. And I actually worked on the island of Milas, which is where the Venus de Milo comes from. And that island has the supplies of a stone called obsidian, which is a shiny black glass, which was traded around the Aegean. And I was taken out one day, (laughs) plopped on this place and said, well, you know about stone tools, figure it out. I left. (laughs) So in my PhD, I had to figure out how to study quarries, which really hadn't been studied before come up with a whole lot of new techniques and um, study ancient trade in Greece.
0: Now, of course, obsidian appears today in your work too, doesn't it?
1: Well, that's, uh, when I finished that study, I thought, I've made up all these stories about what kind of trade could have been going on. I wonder if I can find a place where they were actually trading this stone and see whether the kind of material evidence is anything like what I imagined. And in Papua New Guinea, Margaret Mead had written about people trading obsidian in the island of Manas. So I went off to the museum. Of course,
0: Manas Island, which has become so famous exactly, now. Exactly,
1: exactly. And the big source of obsidian south of where those camps are in a little island called Low Island. So I went off to the museum and started looking at the obsidian artifacts and got really interested and eventually got myself out to Australia to work on this material. Fanta.
0: And you came here to the Australian Museum?
1: I did. I was going around the world to a number of different museums. But my other inspiration as an undergraduate, I'd had a teacher who did anthropological research in New Britain. and um, We should
0: explain New Britain and New Ireland are small islands sort of, northeast of the mainland.
1: Right. Of, Papua New, of Papua New Guinea. They're in the country now but uh, outside the mainland. So I, had, I was already interested trying to probably find a way to get, get here and eventually things all came together and I was able to do the research that I thought I wanted to do and it turned out to be fantastic.
0: <laughs> That's right. So what year was that? When did you come to Australia?
1: I first came on a visit in 1986, I did a lecture tour, and then I came in 1988, I took a year sabbatical from my job in England, and I had grants from the United States to study material from Manas, and then I finally moved here in
0: 1990. Well, so you are one of our longest serving scientists here at the Australian Museum, I think.
1: Well, I don't feel that way. <laughs> and you
0: don't look that way either, I've got to tell you, Robert, You must be doing something right in your work. So, of course, one of the amazing things is the Australian Museum does have this extraordinary Papua New Guinean collection. How did we acquire that?
1: It was acquired in lots of different ways. Um, it, early, in the early days, everyone was only interested in natural history. But when people go out to collect things, um, they deal with people. And in dealing with people, they have to make friends, and you end up exchanging things. So a lot of the early material came alongside of the natural history. And then later, it became something people were interested in. And then after the Garden Palace fire. Which was, of course, in 1882. 1882, we lost our collection. And the museum was desperately trying. So there was a big period of expansion And Sydney being an important port for the Pacific, lots of ships would come in and it was quite easy for them to buy. It was was fairly commercial in those days, the acquisition, trying to build up. And the other reason they wanted the ethnographic material was that they were trading it for more natural history specimens from Europe. So we would send out Aboriginal and Papua New Guinea material and get back animals, dead animals and rocks and, and things.
0: Which is of course the Australian Museum being a natural history museum originally, but expanded to be a cultural museum with this now extraordinary Pacific collection, both East and Western Pacific and and of course an amazing Australian Aboriginal collection as well. As well as yeah, you know, some from Southeast Asia collections
1: yeah, and other very, parts of the world. it's a very, very good comprehensive collection.
0: Yeah, it really is, which we'd like to show the public more of in the mm-hmm. future, absolutely. So, Robin, so there was a fellow called Sir William MacGregor. What role did he play in the collection?
1: Sir William MacGregor was the first administrator of British New Guinea, which was the southern part of New Guinea. The Germans held the, the northern part until World War One, and before that in the early colony, Britain had that and he was an amazing Scotsman who was interested in creating the nation for itself. He, the Brits didn't really want Papua New Guinea. They only took it because Queensland was starting to take it over and was actually doing blackbirding at the early days and Britain didn't like that so they thought all right we have to go in there and and take over this. And so from the beginning they were trying to prepare it for independence And he was, therefore, he thought if this is going to be a country, it has to have a museum. Countries have museums, and they need to preserve their past. And he was also concerned about how rapidly culture was changing. We're talking now here late 1880s. And so he was trying to preserve the past for the future country. And he put together an e- enormous collection of mm, about 11,000 objects. I mean, that's an extraordinary
0: number, isn't
1: it? It's, it's a huge, and it's very comprehensive. And he was thinking so far into the future about, and he was a, a, quite an interesting man. He got along very well with the locals. He learned languages. He went into areas where no one had been. So he made this great collection. And after it went to, it went to Queensland because there was nowhere to put it in the colony and was being looked after there. And the other colonies that were contributing to p Victoria and New South Wales, wanted a share of this collection. And eventually after a lot of politics, about 850 objects came to the Australian Museum. So we have a small proportion of this collection. But the work we're trying to do now, there's a group of us trying to reconstruct the entire collection. And we're treating it as an archaeological site. So we're treating it as the objects, if you dig a site or if you work on old collections, you just have bags of stuff. Mm -hmm. And you have to write the stories about the people who made the things. And, of course, in that period, we mostly have documentation from white people who wrote the stories and the histories. We don't have the history from Papua New Guineans. There is some oral history, but not a great deal. So we're trying to write the story of colonial history from the perspective of indigenous people by looking at the objects that they made and traded. Uh, And we have to write archaeological stories because we're dealing with objects.
0: How extraordinary. And of course, in recent years, you've been securing ARC grants to do your work. Tell us what that means.
1: Uh, The ARC is Australian Research Council, which is um, the Australian government. And so it's a competitive grant scheme where you put in proposals and uh, a committee of scholars, it peer-reviewed and committee of scholars then chooses the best grants and divvies up the money. So we've been very successful in achieving ARC grants here in archaeology at the museum and this is our, our latest grant.
0: Now recently, let's just hark back to Obsidian for a moment, I know you've been doing some really interesting work about tools around Obsidian.
1: We've, uh, we do a lot of experiments to replicate how the tools were made and then we use them Uh, to see what sort of wear patterns you get on the tools and then we use high-powered magnification to understand the ancient tools and also to look at things that are left behind and especially blood residues. So we've been using different techniques to see if the red spots that we're finding on some of these 3,000 year old tools is actually blood.
0: And then can you analyze that blood?
1: Yeah, you can use uh, FTIR and Raman spectroscopy and a number of things, which sends beams of electrons at things. And the chemists, not me, but the chemists I work with know how to read the chemistry. Yes, so yes, you can.
0: It's a whole new way that archaeology helps inform our knowledge of the past, isn't it, as the technology has developed?
1: Yes, especially in in our area, all you find are bits of stone. Mm. You don't find many other um, bits of evidence. So you've got to really get the blood out of the stone. You've got to wring the blood out of the stone to get the stories.
0: Well, that's what we love you for, Mm -hmm. Robin. Not only are you good at getting the blood out of the stone, Mm. you're great at getting these very difficult-to-acquire ARC grants because you're such a leader in your field globally and of course you've been able to forge such a close relationship with the people in Papua New Guinea and the PNG Museum so the Australian Museum and the Papua New Guinea Museum enjoy such a good relationship because of that and that's very important. What you said about you know mature communities, new countries have a museum, that's exactly why the Australian Museum is almost 190 years old. We turn 190 on the 30th of March in 2017 and we'll be celebrating uh, everything we have in the collection and your contribution there we really appreciate it Robin thank you so much for joining me today thank you for
1: talking to me this has been an Australian Museum podcast